shipping Shakespeare fans, uh, just a quick disclaimer this week to let you know that we're dealing with a play that has some darker themes that could be triggering for some people. So if you are especially sensitive to issues like discussions of suicide or verbal and emotional abuse, then this might not be the episode for you. So just, you know, take good care. And if you need to skip this one, that's fine. We'll see you next time. Welcome back to Shipping Shakespeare where we ramble on at length about ships in particular Shakespeare plays that we love, hate, and are kind of meh about. I'm Liz. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Hamlet. Yes, something's rotten in Denmark. First, uh, Julia is going to summarize the play in 90 seconds or less. Then we'll get on to some key ideas. We'll be talking about canon ships, about our OTPs, and then some little ones that we're calling rowboats, since they're not significant enough to be ships. Yay, rowboats. It makes it sound so sad and judgmental. I mean, it's also accurate. (laughs) You're not important enough to be a real ship. As you're no doubt familiar, because you probably read it in high school, Hamlet is the story of the Prince of Denmark, of the same name, who, upon returning from school, discovers that not only has his father dead, but his uncle has married his mother and become king, then later discovers that his uncle killed his father. So that's fun. Instead of confronting him or doing anything that you might expect, Hamlet does fuck all for about four and a half acts and mostly spends time wondering about whether he should confront Claudius or just kill himself or do some more research. It's kind of annoying. (laughs) So just to run through some of the important people in the play. So we have Hamlet, of course, and his best friend Horatio, his mother... Gertrude. Gertrude. (laughs) Totally blank. No, it's it's like right up there with Goneril and Regan as one of the worst female names Shakespeare ever made up. (laughs) Obviously, Claudius, Hamlet's love interest, Ophelia, her family, uh, which consists of her brother, Laertes, and her father, Polonius, who is also an advisor to the king, and Hamlet's childhood friends, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, who you might know from a certain Tom Stoppard play. There's a lot of courtly intrigue in Hamlet. He sets up Claudius with a play within a play, which is, you know, a famous Shakespeare conceit. Really, though, nothing happens until the end of the play when Hamlet and Laertes fight. Basically, everyone dies, including Hamlet, Ophelia, Claudius, Laertes, Gertrude, everyone except for Horatio. Oh, and there's, of course, the side plot that no one ever remembers with Fortinbras, who's from Norway. Which legit gets cut out of a lot of productions, because not only is Hamlet complicated, it is long as shit. For a play that has very little in the way of subplot, not that much happens, but it does take forever. Hamlet is a talky motherfucker. (laughs) He's extremely talky. But so it, it ends up being Shakespeare's more, like, philosophical play. But anyway, so there's a prince from Norway who is trying to take over Denmark or at least take land back from Denmark. And he shows up at the end of the play and has to be told everything that happens. He's one of two named character survivors. The other one is Horatio. And that's where we end up. Everybody dies. It's really depressing. And Hamlet is fucking annoying. You didn't call him a putz once. I'm so impressed. Ah, thanks. I was trying really hard. You succeed. (laughs) Full disclosure, Hamlet is my favorite Shakespeare play and also arguably the most analyzed play in the entire Shakespearean canon, so there are a lot of key ideas. To say the least. I'll try to keep it brief, but I apologize beforehand because this is not going to be like a quick thing. The most obvious one is the idea of madness, which fits right in with Shakespeare's pattern of letting the character a little on the outskirts of polite society speak the most important and potentially harmful truths. Hamlet certainly embraces this concept with a 
show of madness, but the question remains for both the characters and the audience that is he pretending or is he actually unhinged? Because he certainly has no compunction about saying pointed uncomfortable things in public before he starts pretending. And then of course there's Ophelia, whose madness is unquestionably real and tragic, and whose songs are the closest look we get at the most internalized psyche of the whole play. Whether madness is a release or a responsibility is ultimately unanswered, but it's always something that the powerful fear. The play is also really concerned with the idea of truth versus falsity. Hamlet uses all these theatrical metaphors long before a literal theater troupe comes on stage, which suggests that he is above petty simulations and displays more honest human truth, unlike, of course, the excellent actor Claudius, who plays emotions that he doesn't feel. So what that creates is a pretty meta-theatrical world where the audience is explicitly told to distrust actors unless they're mad and speaking truth, unless they're Hamlet, who may not be mad, and the trust issues in this play are a mess for literally everyone, including the audience. <laughs> Death is on everyone's mind eventually, and Hamlet gets the most in-depth and quotable analyses, but more important than death even, though it's less glossy and marketable, is the idea of fate. When Hamlet picks up Yorick's skull in the graveyard, he's thinking not just about the horrible inevitability of dying, but of how useless it is to fight death. He spends the entire play trying to figure out if he wants to die, only to realize that it doesn't matter what he wants, it's gonna happen, and if he wants to die well, he needs to accept that. And it's pretty telling, at least to me, that only when he finally accepts his death is he able to accomplish his revenge and, in fact, die with the dignity he's been reaching for for five acts. No one else in the whole play realizes this, though Horatio and eventually Laertes get close. Though Claudius feels the guilt of having killed his brother, all his plots and plans are for the present, and when he tries to pray for forgiveness without having accepted the fact of his death, he can't even think straight. Fortinbras, who's Hamlet's most obvious foil, is just as occupied as Claudius with the here and now, which helps maintain the sense of something important being lost when he takes over the throne, since we've seen the last chance for introspective self-examining leadership die. Fortinbras and Hamlet are also pretty concerned with doing right by their dead dads, and you guessed it, parental issues are a major part of this play. Not only does Hamlet feel himself much less worthy than his father, but he also has some <clears throat> problems with Gertrude. <laughs> he sees her marriage to Claudius as incestuous, even though they're not blood-related. The ghost also sees it this way, which is a pretty Catholic way of thinking, and he's obsessed with images of her making love with Claudius to a pretty nauseating degree. In general, Hamlet is terrified of women's power and sexual agency, and his expressions of that fear are uniformly misogynistic and violent. There's no real alternative proposed to this. Gertrude's moral ambiguity stems directly from her claiming her own sexual agency, and whether or not Ophelia dies a virgin, she's still inordinately punished, which is all particularly interesting since Hamlet was written somewhere in the last four years of Queen Elizabeth's reign, when her command over her sexual agency had England on edge since she had no children. In Gertrude and Ophelia, it's quite possible to read a cultural backlash against the idea of the glorious female ruler who controls her own body. Last, and certainly not least, Hamlet is one of the few plays in which Shakespeare directly addresses the supernatural. The images of the ghost's afterlife sound like purgatory, which in itself was a bit of a political statement given the Protestant-Catholic tensions throughout Elizabeth's reign. Based on this and a couple other things, people have argued that Shakespeare himself was a secret Catholic. But he never conclusively decides if the ghost is a benign figure. He reveals the truth to Hamlet, but ultimately costs his son and everyone around him their lives. Like in Macbeth, supernatural influences are impossible to ignore, but they don't bode well. It's worth noting that Horatio, the sole survivor, is the one to argue against Hamlet finding out what the ghost wants. There's so much stuff in this play, you guys, and there's a lot to read about Hamlet, so as per usual, we will drop some texts in the show notes, and you can read up to your heart's content about the historical, political, social, cultural implications of everything that's going on in Hamlet. And I didn't even get into the timeline discrepancies, you guys. I did so much research on this, and all the timelines in this play are total bullshit. Probably worth noting that Liz has a Hamlet novel. I like to think of myself as one of the bigger 
Ophelia cheerleaders. You're captain of the squad. Oh, thanks. It's pretty straightforward. I guess we should dive into some canon ships and how we feel about them, and God knows our feelings are complicated. Shall we start with Hamlet and Ophelia? I think that's the most reasonable place to start. Obviously, it's the central couple of the play. They don't actually spend much time as a couple in the course of the play. Ophelia's first scene is her grinding her teeth while her father and brother both tell her break it off with this idiot prince. It's worth noting, you guys, Hamlet is not a romantic play. No! At all. I mean, we're going to be reaching on some of these, understandably. And the couples that do exist in the play, they don't have on-screen time in a romantic way. You know, it's not Romeo and Juliet at all. I think Lady Macbeth and Macbeth get more on-stage nookie than anyone in Hamlet. Yeah, no, this is one of the most anti-romantic plays that Shakespeare ever wrote. He takes such pains to have these couples say horrible things to each other. Horrible things! And then there's all the weird incest stuff. So yeah, this, I would argue, is a boner killer. Like, whatever your grade of boner, anyway. And absolutely nobody accomplishes the horrible saying to the partner more than Hamlet to Ophelia. He is an unmitigated asshole to her. Yeah, so we should backtrack and kind of talk about what their relationship seems to be at the beginning of the play. Seems, madam. Nay, it is. I know not seems. <laughs> Can you resist? You're a liar. You're a fucking liar, Hamlet. The biggest liar. So it's pretty clear from what Polonius says and from what Laertes says that what's been happening between Ophelia and Hamlet is serious enough that they are concerned. The cause of their concern is actually pretty sensible. As they both tell her in different ways and varying degrees of length, Hamlet is not free to to make his own choice. Right. As the heir to the throne, his wife is going to have to be picked by a group of counselors and advisors for the best benefit to the country. What they're concerned with is that she not delude herself into thinking that this can actually be a thing long enough for him to have sex with her. They're trying to keep her marriageable rather than her ending up as Hamlet's mistress, right? I mean, that's probably the best thing she would be able to hope for. Because again, it makes no political sense to marry the daughter of, I guess, a minor noble and a political official. It's a really clear intersection of the political and the personal, which happens in a lot of Shakespeare plays because we're dealing with royalty and nobility. They use some pretty appalling patriarchal language. My favorite is Laertes telling her, Weigh what loss your honor may sustain if with too credent ear you list his songs or lose your heart or your chaste treasure open to his unmastered importunity. Excuse me, I have to go barf. They're kind of dicks. And Ophelia doesn't really argue with them. She's like, you're right, or maybe not you're right, but I'm going to do what you ask. As with so many things in Hamlet, this is really down to actors' interpretations. She has a little bit of pushback. She tells Laertes, practice what you preach, dude. Yeah, it does kind of call her brother a manslut, which is great. Oh yeah, and then tries to argue with Polonius, but winds up saying, I shall obey, my lord. And you're right, we we can debate how much she means that. Their concerns strike me as particularly weird in light of Gertrude's lines at Ophelia's funeral, spoilers, where she outright says, I hope thou shouldst have been my Hamlet's wife. We could argue that Gertrude is trying to say something nice in the moment. Right, but it casts a little bit of doubt on Polonius and Laertes' convictions that this can absolutely never end well for her when the queen herself is in favor of the marriage. I mean, yeah, that's fair. Basically, everyone around Ophelia is trying to run her life for her, and I fucking hate them all for it. Yeah, I mean, obviously we're going to have to talk about that a lot because there really just don't seem to be any good options for her. She's absolutely trapped between and among these idiot, idiot men who 
keep using her for their own ends. I mean, Hamlet does, obviously her father, brother, and the king do. So after saying all of these things to her, Polonius then puts her back into Hamlet's path because they're trying to figure out what's going on with him when he starts pretending or becoming, depending on your interpretation, uh, mad. Because Polonius thinks it's because he's heartbroken, which obviously isn't true. But he uses Ophelia as bait, and that's disgusting and ridiculous. Especially when it exposes her to the level of verbal and in some cases physical abuse that Hamlet dishes out. It has to be maybe the most abusive exchange in all of Shakespeare. I was trying to think of anything that's worse. The only thing I can think of is Claudio to Hero. That occurred to me, and then maybe a little Troilus and Cressida. What sets those two apart from Cressida in my mind is that neither Ophelia nor Hero is remotely emotionally equipped to take that level of abuse. Cressida is a badass. She's hurt, but she'll survive. Neither Ophelia nor Hero are built to survive like that, and they are crushed. That's true. Mostly I was just gauging it on the level of patriarchal bullshit that's being levied. Fair point. This is a huge betrayal on his part. It might not even be real, which I think is the worst part. It's always most compelling to me when, regardless of the fact that heartbreak is not what's motivating this act on Hamlet's part, if he actually is heartbroken, because much as I cheerlead for Ophelia, and little as she had any choice in the matter, it is also a betrayal of him by her. She may be unwilling bait, but she is helping to set him up. Hamlet's gotta be pretty paranoid at this point, so even her smallest involvement is probably devastating to him, but at the same time, the response is just completely out of proportion to what her role actually is. And he should know better. (laughs) I argue that he does know. On some level, he's also using this as part of the performance. You talked about the meta performance at the beginning. This is part of it, and he's using her as a prop in some ways, and everybody does in this play, and it's despicable. I'm not going to argue with that at all. (laughs) The sad thing for me, which helps with my preferred interpretation, that he actually is displaying genuine heartbreak in that scene, which helps to motivate his rage and fury, is the letter that Polonius gets from Ophelia and reads aloud to Gertrude and Claudius. Because for all of the anti-romantic bullshit in the rest of this play, that letter is tragically sweet. This is what Hamlet writes to Ophelia before the play starts. Doubt thou the stars are fire, doubt that the sun doth move, Doubt truth to be a liar, but never doubt I love. O dear Ophelia, I am ill at these numbers. I have not art to reckon my groans, but that I love thee best, O most best, believe it. Adieu. Thine evermore, most dear lady, while this machine is to him, Hamlet. Yeah. That seems to me to be a really good look at who he actually is. Right, who he was before all this went down. When he's at his best, he's caring, sweet, and a little embarrassed at himself. (laughs) Hamlet of their previous relationship is not the same guy. I think that's part of why it's so disorienting and distressing for her. As far as she knows, nothing major has happened other than the fact that she's told him that they can't see each other anymore. So it doesn't make any sense for him to have this extreme reaction. To her, it's like a different person has showed up. Once the play gets going, we see the Hamlet who could have written that letter to Ophelia, but only in scenes with Horatio. Yeah. Horatio absolutely gets the best of Hamlet in this play. Right, which explains his devotion, which is obviously something we're going to talk about a lot in a little bit, but it's not canon, so we will not talk about it now. It's almost not canon. (laughs) As we've discussed, the line between canon and not canon is ambiguous in Shakespeare, so it, it is difficult, but nothing happens on stage or directly in the text, so I'm going to say no. 
not canon. As far as the on-stage, in-text Hamlet-Ophelia relationship goes, it's pretty much one of unmitigated emotional abuse. Honestly, and it doesn't get better because the scene between them at the play that he puts on with Claudius is so disturbing. You just want to punch him. He's such an asshole. He's messing with her on purpose. In front of his mother. In front of his mother and making all of these horrible innuendos. Even if nothing else had happened, I feel like this has to be incredibly damaging to her personally, you know, like at court. So he's sparing her not at all. He could have left her alone and he doesn't. I have always assumed in reading the play that her eventual madness has much more to do with Hamlet's rejection and abuse of her than Claudius and Gertrude like to imagine. I would think so. It's much easier for them to think that it's triggered by the death of her father alone and not by the fact that her father was killed by her ex-lover who has treated her abominably for what in text is said to be two months. I don't think we can really pull those things apart, right? Like, obviously, it is devastating to lose a parent. But yeah, her ex-boyfriend murdered her dad. Like, obviously, you would maybe lose your grip on reality after that happens. And didn't just murder him, but like, drags his body through the palace. Hides it under the stairs. After torturing her for two months. So yeah, I think your average person would probably go a little unhinged in that situation. But then we get the pivot at the end after Ophelia has arguably committed suicide. I realize it's a little ambiguous within the play, but that's how I read it. Same. I guess you can read it as an accident if you want to, but I'm pretty sure that's just wishful thinking on Gertrude's part and an excuse to bury her in the churchyard. Yes. The clowns themselves say, you know, if this had not been a noble lady, she would not be buried in consecrated ground. Right. And in Shakespeare, if a clown says it, it's probably true. So obviously Hamlet shows up at her funeral and is so distraught that he starts a fight with Laertes about who is more grief stricken. Such fucking posturing. I'm going to go ahead and call him a putz now because that's what he is. Yes, correct. That is an excellent deployment of the word. Putsy Hamlet. Hamlet, putz of Denmark. That's how their relationship caps off is with this ridiculous dick measuring contest between her brother and her ex-lover. Who are literally jumping into the grave trying to outdo each other in grief. It's grotesque. She doesn't even get peace as she's being buried. That's how shitty this play is for Ophelia. She's dead and she's still a prop. Oh god, that's too true. It's awful. That's that canon relationship. I guess we can move on to the next one. We'll talk more about Hamlet and Ophelia later, obviously, because they definitely qualify as a ship I want to destroy and one that you probably find problematic, if somewhat fave. Yeah, let's talk Gertrude Claudius. And we can kind of talk about King Hamlet and Gertrude at the same time. We're just going to talk about Gertrude now. Gertrude is so fucking cool. Problematic as hell, but really cool. That struck me this time as I was reading it for this, because I think previously I hadn't cared very much about Gertrude, but she's one of the more complicated ladies in Shakespeare. So obviously was originally married to King Hamlet, Hamlet's father, because let's keep that name going through the generations. (laughs) Don't name your kids Hamlet, guys. Just don't. Especially not if you're Shakespeare, because then they will die and you will have to write a play like this to rid yourself of the guilty ghost. Poor little Hamlet Shakespeare. Obviously, Gertrude and King Hamlet have a relationship. It's not really clear to me what the nature of it was. We only ever see it through Hamlet's extreme 
extremely biased point of view. Oh my gosh, she idealizes his father so much. It's crazy. I mean, he compares him to a god, right? You went from like a sun god to Claudius, and I don't understand why you would do this. And she's like, whoa, buddy, your dad was just a guy. Margaret Atwood has this amazing piece where she imagines Gertrude talking back to Hamlet in the closet scene. And it's so wonderful because you finally get a point of view that's not Hamlet's on this relationship, and it is illuminating. Very deeply embedded in his perspective, which, you know, obviously that's a little bit unusual. I mean, you kind of think of the theater as being a more omniscient point of view. You're right. This is very much Hamlet's story as told by him. God, he does so much talking. Hamlet's got some daddy issues, because not only does he compare his father to a god in relation to Claudius, but he compares himself, my father's brother, but no more like my father than I to Hercules. Jesus. Really, you don't need much more than that to explain the daddy issues. There's a whole cocktail of daddy issues and self-hatred wrapped up in that. Oh my gosh, it's this level of idealization. I think it bears noting that before the ghost even shows up, everyone is concerned by the amount of mourning that Hamlet is doing for his father. So the ghost certainly complicates matters, obviously, because he sets them on this path to revenge, but it doesn't start there, clearly. There's a deeper psychological element to Hamlet's relationship with his father, and he is already grief-stricken, he's already furious with his mother when the play starts. The only really other perspective that we get on the Gertrude-King Hamlet relationship is in the lines that the ghost speaks when he tells Hamlet to leave his mom alone. Let not thy mind taint against thy mother aught, leave her to heaven. Right. She doesn't have a part of this. She's not responsible for what happened to me. Though you could certainly also read it and play it as a more subtle and vicious form of vengeance. What the ghost wants for Gertrude is not the quick end he wants for Claudius, but a prolonged guilty suffering. And especially if we read Gertrude as caring about Claudius more than she did about King Hamlet, then that's punishment in itself, right? Yeah. And I would argue that that reading is entirely valid. Yeah, they're very affectionate. <laughs> There's this wonderful book that I love by Stephen Greenblatt called Will in the World, where he undertakes the daunting task of writing a biography of Shakespeare using the plays as primary sources, since we don't have much else to go on. <laughs> He's smart enough to be like, you know, none of this is conclusive, <laughs> obviously, but these are patterns that you notice in the work that could certainly have manifested based on the reality that Shakespeare was living. And he points out that the two sustained romantic relationships relationships that we see beyond the first blush of love are the Macbeths and Gertrude and Claudius. Oh, that's fascinating. Both really, really physically into each other and pretty unambiguously problematic, if not outright villainous. This is Shakespeare's view of marriage after the courtship is done. The surest way to get that longevity is through murder. That's great. It'll give you something to talk about on cold winter nights. If we remove that aspect from it, that, you know, we have these villains that stick with each other, but the fact that they're still so sexually invested in each other doesn't seem unimportant. Probably the bigger argument that he's making, right? Absolutely. So murder and, like, continuing to fuck. Or even, at least for the Macbeths, I think less for Gertrude and Claudius, but that it's kind of a turn-on. Oh, I mean, absolutely for the Macbeths. Oh my gosh. I've seen uh, the post-Duncan uh, murder scene played that way so many times. It's... And I think that's an accurate reading. But anyway, we're talking about Hamlet. Sorry. We are talking about Hamlet. It's hard not to veer off into other tragedies. Yeah, the fact that Gertrude and Claudius are still really physically into each other is fascinating for the audience and really off-putting to Hamlet. Oh, he's obsessed with it, right? As you pointed out, he references 
their physical relationships so many times that it's uncomfortable. It's not just that he references it. He draws a mental picture. Yeah, it's gross. He's thought about this. A fair bit, I would argue. And I think it's probably safe to assume that it's not necessarily without any fodder on their part. I can imagine a couple that was fairly publicly affectionate with one another, um, which probably just sets him off even more. I've certainly seen the scene when Polonius comes to talk with him about Hamlet played as Claudius just wants Polonius to get the hell off stage so that he can diddle Gertrude. <laughs> the best version I ever saw of this was staged with the two of them downstage, Polonius upstage, their backs to him, and that's when Polonius comes out with, what do you think of me? <laughs> Claudius is like, oh shit, sorry dude. Mama. I have kinging to do. Oh, that's pretty good. I think you could definitely make the argument that they do care about each other emotionally as well. Yes. Claudius basically calls Gertrude his morality pet. He can't make himself do anything to hurt her, even when it's her son who's threatening his very rule. Right. Yeah. Hamlet clearly has no idea how much his relationship with Gertrude spares him for much of the play. He's so fucking oblivious. And even at the end, I mean, Claudius has to be completely underhanded. Backfires, granted. But he has to go through Laertes to undo Hamlet. He still can't have him executed himself directly. I mean, he tries to get the British to do it. That backfires. It comes back to him and Gertrude. And the, the fact that he killed his brother in part so that he could get with his brother's wife. That, more than anything, to me, is an argument in favor of the pre-death blinking. These guys had been into each other for a while. Hamlet certainly assumes it. I don't think it's a stretch to think that there was something going on beforehand. It does make Gertrude's shock at what's really happened, who Claudius really is at the end of the play. Naive, maybe? It does. I mean, it raises the question of how complicit she is, or was, in that murder. I think that's one of the central questions of the play, because the ghost tells us that she's not, right? But as you pointed out, it's not necessarily clear how much we can read that as accurate. The ghost himself may not know everything. He certainly knows that Claudius was the one who did the deed, but Gertrude may have been involved in ways that he didn't see. Right, and still can't understand. My personal headcanon has always been that, yes, she cheated on her husband, but no, she didn't plot to kill him. Given her reaction to Hamlet's accusations, that rings the most true to me. She doesn't act like a guilty woman in that sense. Yeah, just kind of queen of denial. <laughs> well, I don't understand why you're so upset. That peen must be real good. It has to be. Does that about do it for canon chips for us? I think that's all that's discussed in canon. <laughs> Again, not the most romantic play. There is not a lot. We don't know anything about Ophelia's mother and Polonius. There's not a lot in general. I just don't want to ship Polonius with anybody. <sighs> Gross. Obviously, we know Laertes is getting some, but we don't know with whom. Yeah. Well, at least Polonius is worried about him getting too much. Uh, Ophelia also mentions it, so I, I think it's fair to say that Laertes is getting some. It's just not clear where, whom, how many, gender, any of those things. He is in school in France, and I think at some point they talk about the French disease, so maybe their fears are not unfounded. Probably not. But again, though, we can push that into the realm of fandom. Yes. <laughs> and just acknowledge that Laertes, at least in this play, is getting laid. Hamlet's not. Hamlet is not getting laid at all, and it definitely shows. Though, again... My headcanon is that he and Ophelia were getting it on before the play started. Well, your your interpretation of their relationship is fairly disturbing, so... <laughs> we'll talk about this in a bit. Are you ready to move on to OTPs? <clears throat> I will go down with this ship. And we're done. Well, it's not a lot of ships. We've talked about the dearth of ships. The waters are fairly empty <laughs> this week, you guys. Except for Ophelia. She's floating in them. Oh, you had to do that, didn't you? <laughs> of course I did. You met me? so upset now. You're welcome. 
Okay, on that very cheery note, let's talk about Hamlet and Horatio. Let's do that, because that is pretty much my only ship, aside from a couple rowboats. Oh my gosh, Hamlet and Horatio. It's the only healthy relationship in the play. And it's only borderline healthy. Like, if you look at the ending, it's like almost extremely unhealthy in a literal sense, but it does work out. Sort of. Depending on your point of view, I guess. Hamlet has a friend. Aw, a very good friend. Best friend. His name is Horatio. He's not really a servant. No. I get the sense that Horatio is of noble enough blood to be a relative equal to Hamlet. Like, not royalty by any stretch, but not an embarrassing companion. Is there a male equivalent of ladies-in-waiting? I don't even know. Gentlemen of the Privy Chamber? Ugh. I hope Horatio gets a little better than that. This is the time when Privy Chamber just meant your own personal rooms, but Henry VIII did in fact have a groom of the Privy Stool, whose job it was to wipe the king's ass after he took a dump. That is what I was thinking of. Thank you for the distinction. You're welcome. (laughs) So Horatio is Hamlet's friend. They have been at school together? Yes, because he asks, what make you from Wittenberg? Hamlet confides in Horatio more than anyone else in the play. He's, I think, the only person at the end who knows what's going on, which is part of why Hamlet tells him that he has to live and tell his story. But I read it as he's just trying to save Horatio's life at that point. Yeah, because they're the closest that this play comes to a rewarding OTP. Yes. Even though, obviously, it has to be hard for Horatio to see everything that's going on, Hamlet never turns on him. Yeah, unlike literally everyone else in Hamlet's life. And I think part of it is that he knows that Horatio has been away from court as well, so there's really no possibility that Horatio participated in anything. So Hamlet can't really trust anyone at court because he doesn't know who was privy to what happened between Gertrude and Claudia and then what Claudius did to King Hamlet. So he doesn't know what Polonius knows, for example. He doesn't really know what Ophelia knows either because he doesn't talk to her because he's an asshole. I hadn't thought of that, but you're right. And then there's that speech, which starts off with him saying, Thou art in as just a man as e'er my conversation coped with all. And Horatio's like, guys. Then Hamlet continues, Nay, do not think I flatter with such notes as, Since my dear soul was mistress of her choice and could of men distinguish, her election hath sealed thee for herself. Give me that man that is not passion's slave, and I will wear him in my heart's core, I in my heart of heart, as I do thee. Yeah, it's toward the middle. Obviously, Hamlet has discovered some things about the people around him. I'm pretty sure Rosencrantz and Guildenstern have just left the stage, so it's clearly a commentary on them. But yeah, it's also about his devotion to Horatio and how much he trusts him. I think it's important to note, too, that Horatio is maybe the only person who's going to remember Hamlet as he was and not as this prince gone mad who destroyed everything. Yeah. So when he says, tell my story, it's not just explain my motivations for doing this, but it's like, really remember me as I was, you know, the person that you cared about, because Horatio obviously does, because you, you would not do all of this shit if you weren't really invested in Hamlet. And again, Horatio is the character who gets the best that Hamlet is capable of. Before Hamlet even comes on stage, Horatio is already wanting to refer this question of the ghost to him. When Hamlet is inclined to trust, he's a hell of a compelling leader. Oh yeah, for sure. One of the points that Shakespeare's making in the play is that this is a waste. Yeah. This is a complete waste. There's so many gifts that Hamlet has. If he was placed in a situation where he could use them and not so inclined to self-destruction, he actually would be a hell of a king. Yeah. I think we're making an argument against the man of action in a lot of ways, right? That's not always what you need. In this situation, obviously, his contemplative temperament works against him, but in the affairs of state, that would be a laudable quality. 
quality. And with Laertes on the scene, we see exactly how much destruction a reckless man of action can cause. Yeah, or Fortinbras. He's gallivanting around Northern Europe, causing all of these problems. He's kind of in the background to a lot of conversations. But as you pointed out, I think we're clearly meant to compare him to Hamlet. For better and worse. Yeah. Obviously, there's plenty for Horatio to be attracted to in Hamlet, vice versa. You can play them as very affectionate. I've definitely seen that. I've seen that ending scene with Horatio goes to drink out of the poison goblet. I've seen Hamlets that just slap the goblet away violently. Like, don't do that. You can't do that. Oh my god. I know. I just like my feelings. (laughs) Like, wow. He makes up this argument for it, but it really he's really saving Horatio's life at that point for many reasons, including how he feels about him. And then obviously Horatio's famous lines at the end. Yeah. Shakespearean characters are always coming up with epitaphs, but no one does it better. I mean, really. Now cracks noble heart. Good night, sweet prince. And flights of angels sing thee to thy rest. Like, goddamn. Damn, man. You spent five acts tearing your hair out with frustration. And then when the right Horatio says those lines, I'm on the floor. Yeah, gutting. It's just gutting. So yeah, I think there's clearly mutual affection. Obviously, we can argue about whether that has a romantic tinge to it or not. That's part of the point of the podcast. I think you can read into it. And I think Hamlet's view of women makes shipping him with Horatio much more rewarding than shipping him with Ophelia. Right. You have an equal. If you ship him with a girl, you're going to have to reckon with that foul, deep-seated misogyny. God, it's deep. I realize that he's angry at women because he's angry at his mother, which Hi, Freud, but come on, man. Like, I feel like it's nothing to deserve that. But yeah, Horatio gets treated like an equal. Women just will never have that with Hamlet. Horatio gets appreciated. Hamlet doesn't appreciate any other character in the whole play. Like, he spends four hours doing his level best to make them all seem like fools and idiots, except Horatio. Right. No, he's such disdain for everyone else and so much admiration and respect for Horatio that even if they're not fucking, this is Hamlet's strongest and healthiest relationship. And it's so much better if they are. It's pretty great, just to picture. Then at least Hamlet's getting laid. Right? I mean, at least he was probably getting laid at school, right? I mean, that's how I imagine it. Yeah. And, you know, Horatio with his more Roman um, sensibilities, which get referenced several times, I like to read that as, you know, not just being okay with falling on your sword, as it were. Maybe he could also fall on Hamlet's sword. Yeah, some other swords. (sighs) God. Part of what makes it so sad, though, is that for all that Hamlet genuinely does care about Horatio, he fucks him over just as much as he fucks everybody else over. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's the, the destruction at the end of this play is complete. It's total. It's not intentional, as you've said, in performances. He actively does not want Horatio to die. I feel like, too, that's like the first time in a while that he's thought about that as a possibility for someone else. Yeah, he's a pretty fundamentally thoughtless character. Yeah, he hasn't thought about it. He hasn't thought about the consequences. Which is ironic, given how much he thinks. I know, right? But he just, at this point, is responding, and he's so entrenched in his own thoughts and feelings that it really is remarkable that he spares a thought for anyone else at any point. Which I guess, again, points to the strength of this relationship, right? Because he does think about Horatio. Yeah, which he doesn't do for anybody else. No one else. Not his mother, not his girlfriend. I mean, nobody. This is the one that he cares about. Just Horatio. This is the person who can reach him. Yeah, everyone else can literally go die. I mean, yeah, I ship it. I do too. I think it is the most rewarding ship in the play. Insofar as any ship can be rewarding in Hamlet, then yes. Horatio doesn't exactly have it easy, but he never gets chased away. He never gets abused. He is trusted. He is appreciated. So if you're going to have a good relationship in Hamlet, it's obviously these two. Which brings us to all the bad relationships. All right then, ladies and gents. 
as we've discussed. Um, none of these are my OTPs. We will definitely talk about them more in the next episode because they are problematic and I do want to sink them. To some degree, I think they deserve to be sunk, but I ship them. It's tragic and sick and messed up, but I do. It's there. I think it's worth acknowledging that sometimes the ships we like are not always the happiest and healthiest. That's true. That's fine. Sometimes we're drawn to fucked up people. Obviously, Ophelia is drawn to a fucked up person. As is Gertrude. As is Gertrude. So even if I'm not rooting for those ships, I feel like I can understand them. And obviously, they do ring true for people. Like, people recognize themselves, sadly, in these setups. If you do, I hope you have a good support system. Same. Yes. Get what you need. There's no call to stay in a relationship where someone treats it like this. No. If your boyfriend says that you should go to a whorehouse, then it's probably time to get the fuck out. Before he kills your father. Before he kills your father and hides his body under the stairs. That being said... All right, fine. Yes, I ship Hamletophilia. <laughs> what did you call it? Hamphilia? Is that your ship name? Oh, it doesn't even sound good. <laughs> no, it doesn't, because it's not good. It's messed up and tragic and awful, but I ship it. <laughs> Do you want to tell us a little bit why? Is it the poetry? It's the poetry, isn't it? Honestly, the reason that I ship Hamphilia is because, to me, more than anything else, that ship is about the potential that gets systematically wasted and thrown away over the course of this play. The Hamlet who writes that letter to Ophelia is the Hamlet who would have made a badass king, and who actually would have cared a little bit about people not himself. <laughs> Which is not to say that he doesn't still view her as an absolute good, as opposed to his mother's absolute bad. The dude is still deeply problematic. I just mourn for what they both could have been, separately and together, because there's a great deal of wasted potential in both of them that probably she would have done better bringing out in him than he and her. <laughs> Too often the case, right? But yeah, I can definitely see that. I can see what could have been deeply rewarding and meaningful for both of them just get twisted and perverted by this vengeance quest and this hatred, and it's really upsetting. Oh yeah, let's be real. It's an effective tragedy. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason it's possibly the greatest play Shakespeare ever wrote. Right. We are talking about a tremendous waste, not just in terms of loss of life, but loss of what could have been for the individual, for the country. It's pretty clear that not unlike at the end of King Lear, we're not talking about the best times ahead. Right. What we're seeing is a steady decline. And a, a more militant way of life. So for sure, there's a broken promise. There's a lot that could have been good. You don't get to access a lot of that in the play though. It's mostly imagined. You have to read between the lines to get to it. I just really like doing that. For sure. I mean, again, that's the point of having headcanons. It's also so messed up and sad to me that only when she's dead is he able to actually say, I loved her. Yeah, that funeral scene. It's posturing and absurd and more a pissing contest than anything else, but when he realizes who's being buried, he's shocked. It's one of the few emotional moments in this play where I think we can take Hamlet at his word. Right. Although there are some performative aspects to the grief, as you mentioned, it does seem to be genuine. He overhears Laertes growling at the priest from like behind the grave. Hamlet says, what? The pharophilia? And then shuts up for a good ten lines, at least. Especially in this play where, you know, the dude never shuts up. His silence is really powerful to me. Yeah, depending on your Hamlet, we could have a level of shock, grief, anything there, right? I mean, there's a lot that happens in Shakespeare that's unspoken, which obviously is why it's worthwhile to see the plays as much as you can, as often as you can, because they're going to be different every time. 
And then there are the songs. <laughs> I need nothing else to persuade me that she did, in fact, her chaste treasure open. If you go with the pretty well-established Shakespearean convention that the madman speaks the most brutal and hard-to-hear truth, then Ophelia's songs are about death and about betrayed love. And she is angry. Not unreasonably. <laughs> She's not fully coherent, but... The anger and the heartbreak really comes across. Uh, hard agree on that one, yeah. Definitely. Then up he rose and donned his clothes and up the chamber door. Let in the maid that out a maid never departed more. <laughs> Quoth she, before you tumbled me, you promised me to wed. So would I had done by yonder son, and thou hadst not come to my bed. <sighs> I think anyone who doesn't read that as a commentary on her relationship with Hamlet is intentionally missing the point. No argument whatsoever here. I was just thinking about thematically in the play the kind of refuge that we can take in madness. I think it's pretty clear that Hamlet does. I mean, he gets to express his emotions in a way that he is simply not allowed to do prior to that. But Ophelia is obviously the better example. We have a character who's in many instances been denied her ability and right to speak, who's been forced in to this passive role, as I said, has been used as a prop. So yeah, the fact that she finally gets to say, look, this is what happened, and fuck it, this is terrible. <laughs> yeah. And you all let it happen. Not only that, but this is an unspoken convention that I get to be used in this way because of the way the world works and because of the way our social structures are set up, that he can do these things to me and essentially use me and discard me and kill my father and hide him under the stairs to get really specific. All this is possible because things are the way that they are. She gets one soliloquy before this, right after the get thee to a nunnery scene, which isn't even a soliloquy, because her father and the king are hiding just off stage. Right, yeah, it's just no privacy for Ophelia. That's the only moment when she gets close to saying what she thinks and feels, except for these songs. As you've said, this is the only refuge available to her. In claiming it, she's doing her damnedest to actually force everyone there to recognize what's been happening and what they've been complicit in. Talk about cries for help. The decision, particularly by Victorian interpreters, not to read these songs and these scenes as the deepest expression of her inner thoughts is willfully ignorant, I think, because there's no other avenue into her mind that we get. Right. I think you have to base interpretations of Ophelia in large part off of these because there's not much else to go on. Oh, yeah. And I mean, honestly, like, it strikes me as naive to think that they didn't have sex. Yeah. Not only because of what she says, but look at the historical backdrop that we have. Shakespeare's always a little bit about his contemporary history. And because of what he says, too. Yeah. Granted, Hamlet's a misogynist, but from the moment he turns on her, his attacks on her are so basely sexual that it doesn't make sense sense for him to be deploying language like that if that wouldn't hurt her the most. Oh yeah, absolutely. And his misogyny on top of that. I mean, what is more common than men sleeping with women and then calling them whores? Minus the supernatural slaying powers, Ophelia is kind of analogous to Buffy after Angel loses his soul, except for the fact that she's not allowed by the narrative to fucking kill him. Wow, you're <laughs> this is a beautiful line you've drawn. <laughs> Shipping Shakespeare, get your Buffy Shakespeare connections every week. I feel really strongly about Ophelia. It doesn't come through at all, if anything, you've been extremely quiet about it this whole time. We are failing at OTPs, by the way. This is supposed to be the happy section. It's Hamlet. <laughs> 
There's not much we can do. It's so hard, you guys. We're not even going to have that much to talk about with problematic faves because all the faves are problematic. Claudius Gertrude is sort of a ship of yours? Again, not unproblematic, but I find the fact that they're middle-aged and super physically into each other really fascinating. I particularly like looking at their relationship in the scene where Laertes comes back crying for vengeance. This is the only moment that Claudius really shines as king when you see him actually earning that crown a little bit. He's so calm and so in control, even in a situation where he doesn't have any of the visible power. But Gertrude is losing her goddamn mind. That struck me this time, too, when I was reading. She's putting herself physically between them. Like It's pretty obvious because um, Claudius is continually telling her to just let him go. Yeah, twice. Let him go, Gertrude. <laughs> and she's all like, no, nah, man, <laughs> he's trying to kill you. Laertes has got a sword in his hand, a crowd outside screaming for blood for him to be king, and Gertrude is flinging herself in front of him to protect her husband. That's incredibly powerful to me, because I'm having a hard time coming up with other Shakespearean ladies who do that for their dudes. It's true. I'm not saying they're not compelling. I just don't always think of them when I think of pairings. Yeah, no, I mean, they're deeply problematic. I don't know that we need to talk about them in problematic faves, because I don't, I don't know that they're quite up there for me. Not fave enough. Problematic enough. Not fave enough. <laughs> You know, it's the sort of thing that makes me want fic where King Hamlet just, like, didn't exist or died earlier. There's, like, a lot of AU possibilities with Hamlet. Like, pretty much everything that you would be doing is trying to fix what happens in the play. Aside from the fact that he kills his brother and her husband in order to be with her, there's nothing fundamentally wrong about their relationship. No. They're actually pretty healthy if you put the whole murder thing aside. If you can get past that small detail, yes. Little, little thing. It's tiny, tiny detail of the murder and fratricide. But no, it stands out to me, especially in comparison to Hamlet Ophelia, because not only is there mutual desire, there's mutual respect. That's true. I mean, she's present for a lot of his political machinations and things like that. So yeah, clearly he sees her as an equal in a lot of ways. Right. And, you know, he calls her in the very first scene, in the first reference to her in the whole play, the imperial jointress of our warlike state. So yeah, he absolutely sees her as an equal. And he should. Gertrude's fairly formidable. Hamlet does not extend that courtesy to anyone. Anyone. Except maybe Horatio. Except maybe Horatio. No, okay. You've talked me into it. I kind of dig it. Yes! <laughs> I can buy it anyway. This is a solid OTV. Like, I'm not going to go off and write fic about them now, but, you know, if anyone wants to send us some good Gertrude, Claudius fic, knock yourselves out. I mean, I'll read it. I will definitely read it. Yay! Except for that John Updike bullshit. Ugh. Let that go. Yeah, screw that. He was not keen on engaging with Gertrude as she actually is, so I was not interested. Yeah, that's a bummer. Oh, let's not diminish the ladies of Shakespeare, guys. Come on. They need some love. Especially in this play. Everyone needs love in this play. <laughs> Especially in this play. Well, I fully think that Hamlet deserves a good smack on the back of the head, but whatever. Horatio can make out with him and then smack him upside the head. Whatever their kink is, I'm fine with it. I particularly liked your stated OTP. In our show notes, my Hamlet OTP is Hamlet and Horatio and then Ophelia gets to leave for another play or fight zombies. There is a play that y'all should read. Such a good play. And see if you have the chance. We will link this too, because it's amazing. It's called Living Dead in Denmark, and it's Ophelia, Juliet, and Lady Macbeth versus the zombie apocalypse. And it's exactly as amazing as it sounds. It is the greatest thing. It's one of my very favorite takes on Shakespeare. It's brilliant. If you get a chance to see this play, you must. It's hilarious. You should definitely read it. It's a very quick read. Mm -hmm. Unlike Hamlet. 
Hamlet. Unlike Hamlet, which takes forever, I think there's often a desire to make our Shakespearean heroines the heroes of their own stories, and this play does that beautifully. And I would argue there's no heroine who more deserves to be the hero of her own story than Ophelia. It's nice to see Lady Macbeth and Juliet, and for reasons I'm not going to spoil, um, they're great in general, but specifically Ophelia, who's the poster girl for abuse and passivity, and there's a reason that we use her as an example in the mental health world when we talk about abused women. So to have her get to just kick ass is not only satisfying, I think it's, it's necessary and it's important. What the smart lady said. Okay, so how do we feel about Hamlet, Horatio, Ophelia's, and OT3? Does that work at all? I always kind of feel like it doesn't, but I maybe can't explain why. I think in a better world, it would. In the world you're talking about where Hamlet and Ophelia is an incredibly problematic pairing? I just don't get the sense that any one of the three of them would be good with sharing. Probably not. And Hamlet himself is pretty possessive. This is a little bit. He's not jealous at all. I know what you're talking about. No, no, not even a little bit. I think he might actually do the most to jettison that one himself. This is probably true. I mean, I'm always in favor of the idea of little, like, character support groups, so even if Horatio and Ophelia weren't a couple, I do wish that they were friends. Yeah. I've seen productions and adaptations where he is the one who takes care of her when she's gone mad. I will freely confess that in the Ophelia novel that I'm working on, they cordially hate each other's guts because they're both wicked jealous of the other one's connection to Hamlet. <laughs> I do recall that part, yes. I would love it if they worked together as an OT3, but I don't see it happening, which makes makes me sad. Not just because the play itself is so tragic, just like, I think as you pointed out, the, the personalities there, or specifically Hamlet's personality, like I don't necessarily think the other two are inherently jealous, but they both want to be the special one. Well, and like you have this personality that they're both drawn to, you know, the kind of people that like pull you into their orbit and you kind of lose yourself a little bit in that, like I feel like everyone's met that person, right? That is obviously Hamlet. I think it's hard in some ways maybe to see other people outside of that, to like recognize them and their experience. So I always kind of want it to work, and then I feel like it doesn't. Yeah, no, same. I feel like many people would be happier in the play if it did. Oh my god, right? So I think that concludes our really lackluster OTPs this week. <laughs> well, they're not lackluster. We care a ton. They just all die. We do. They're just really sad. Team Hamlet Horatio. Let's talk about rowboats. There are a couple. Well, the obvious is Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Yes. Who really aren't distinguished from each other at all. They're both a pair of dumb, bad, spying lickspittles. Even the commentary I was reading pointed out that it doesn't even seem like other characters know the difference between them because <laughs> at one point Claudius says Rosencrantz and Guildenstern and then Gertrude says Guildenstern and Rosencrantz. So no one even knows. If your director doesn't block that for maximum comedy, your director is doing it wrong. Obviously. You can draw some connections there, even just from the fact that they're inseparable, right? You don't even have to talk about the Stoppard play, although why not? Yeah, You kind of do have to. They're extremely shippable in that play. Yeah. Bless their poor dumb hearts. They're poor, dumb, confused, manipulated hearts. At least they get to die together in England. Oh, bless. Good for them. Insofar as anything is good for characters in this play. Nothing is. But yeah, in the original, they're fairly straightforward sycophants working for Claudius. To be fair, they don't know everything that he has planned for Hamlet. It is a little bit harsh what he does to them. Yeah, especially considering they're supposed to be childhood friends. Yeah. 
Jasper Times, Needs Must, all that, all those cliches. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are the kids that he played with through eighth grade, and then Horatio is like his cool college friend who really knows him. Who really just understands him, and they don't have anything in common anymore, but they show up in his life and also plot with his evil uncle. So awkward when those things happen. And no one is particularly subtle about it. It's such a ham-handed solution that Claudius is using. Like, there's no reason to think that that would work. It makes about as much sense as, oh, he's gone crazy because of thwarted love. Yeah, that's totally what happened. But I feel like that's about as much as we can say about those two chumps, if we're not talking stoppered. This is not shipping stoppered, so we will be good, but you should read it and then ship it, because we do. Oh, my very favorite. So, guys, something for you to know about me is when a tragedy ends, I like to pair up the people who are still alive. Don't know why. It's just my thing. Which makes sense, because as Benedict says, the world must be peopled. There you go. (laughs) Except that the survivors are usually dudes, so... The world must have Slash, okay? Sweet, sweet Slash. In this case, our survivors are Fortinbras and Horatio, which is kind of a weird rowboat, but I also dig it a little bit. Well, especially if you think of Fortinbras as the Hamlet foil. Right? Horatio is out of this tragically ended relationship, and then this other guy who's not that different shows up. Especially if you take the view that Horatio Hamlet was never consummated. True. Which, canonically not. Poor Horatio is just, like, pining and longing all around Elsinore. Pining and heartbroken. But Fortinbras, he's a man of action. Fortinbras is a man of action. Also, I'm gonna bet getting some action. So there's not a lot that happens between them at the end of the play here, but Horatio is the only one left, and Fortinbras probably will keep him from committing suicide, so that's good. And it would be nice after all of the shit he just went through for Horatio to, like, have a bit of something good. Yeah, just something nice happen, and Fortinbras has been marching for a while. I'm sure Horatio is the prettiest thing he's seen in a while, so. Certainly the least grime covered. Yeah. Also, maybe, maybe some source of comfort. Like, that's probably a little bit of a stretch, but we're talking about not only pairings, we're talking about rowboats, so... That'll come later, once we get to the Tempest. Yes. <laughs> Horatio is going to be pretty essential to Fortinbras as he takes control of Denmark. Right. So, he, he pretty much has two options, right? Like, he can leave either this world or just the country, or he can stay and, and try to repair some of what's happened. And knowing what we know about Horatio, I'm going to argue for the latter. Of course he stays. Hamlet told him to stay and tell his story. Also, from what we know about Fortinbras, I don't think you necessarily have to think that he'll be unsympathetic to what happened. This is clearly someone who understands the damage of political intrigue and and all of that. Yeah. When productions include Fortinbras, he kind of varies depending on what the director wants to accomplish with that ending. Because there's certainly the famous decision that the last line, which is Fortinbras, go bid the soldiers shoot, is him, in fact, sentencing Horatio to death as the sole survivor. It's a bit dark. If your director really wants to hammer home the point that something invaluable has been lost for good, they're going to take away even the hope that Hamlet's story will be told by killing the only witness. Kind of sinks the rowboat right before it starts. But if your director is less interested in a King Lear total downer... Such a downer. ...and wants to have you leave the theater thinking, maybe this isn't all bad, then yes, that Fortinbras could absolutely be a source of comfort to Horatio. Okay, so my read has always been, we're going to have this military moment. We're going to have Hamlet be born off the stage as if he were a soldier. And when that happens, you do shoot. So that is my feeling about it. You know, I think that's certainly the context intended. (laughs) Yeah, no, obviously you can read it the other way too, but I don't see the point. I think it's a valid choice to make for shock value and total depressing ending. Right. You know, they may be foils, but Fortinbras is very 
very, very different in many, many ways. Oh, yeah. I kind of see it akin to, you know, at the end of King Lear, sometimes they have Kent leave the stage and then you hear like a gunshot or something. Oh, Kent. Which you kind of think is going to happen anyway. We're definitely doing Lear, you guys. So be excited. And also bring some tissues. So yeah, okay. It's a rowboat. It's a little bit of a stretch, but it's not so terrible to think that maybe Horatio can derive some comfort after Hamlet's death. We could talk about the guards at the beginning. Bernardo and Marcellus. Really, any named minor characters that you want to pair up, I feel you can pair up. If they're named and they're not in that last scene, they probably made it out alive. So go to town. They're probably having glad-to-be-alive sex right now. It's Shakespeare, so ordinary people, generally speaking, are okay at the end. So yeah, anybody you want to pull from that original cast list, enjoy yourselves, because everything else is really depressing. And one can hope, at least, that Bernardo and Marcellus were enjoying themselves that night the ghost first appeared. Oh, yeah, that would be great. <laughs> I mean, that's a classic horror trope, right? You know, you're making out in your car and then you see something supernatural happen. Oh, bless. Oh my god, okay, I didn't ship it before, but I do now. That's our goal every week, is to come up with a new headcanon. That's why they didn't want to tell anyone right away. They waited for another night before they brought Horatio in. They're like, what were you doing, though? Nothing. We were just sitting in the cold watching. What What do you think we were doing? Do um you and Hamlet want to come and take notes? I feel like you guys might be kind of bad at this. Considering how sexually frustrated you both are, I'm going to go with yes. So sad. So yeah, there we go. There's the positive takeaway. Even if Fortinbras and Horatio don't make it, Bernardo and Marcellus totally do. Do, and they're going to talk about that ghost thing for the rest of their lives. I'm glad we could find an uplifting note to end on. That probably will not be true next time. Gird your loins, guys. We've got some ships to sink. We will see you for more Hamlet shortly, and thank you for tuning in. This show is produced by us, Julia and Liz, as part of the Adjective Sphinx Network. The music we use is Almain One by John Bull and can be found at museopen.com. You can find links for more info in the show notes. Find us and our sibling shows on Twitter at Adjective Sphinx or email us at adjectivesphinx at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it on iTunes and leave a review. Thanks for listening.